uh, I echo what Becky said. Uh, I had the honor of eulogizing Dad here on Wednesday at his service. And uh, it's, it's uh, one of the ways I was able to do that was because of the comfort that I get just from teaching here each Sunday. Because the, the service, the memorial service was here, and so Dad's casket and Dad was there, and I got to stand here where I get to stand each Sunday. And uh, one of the ways I was able to do it and make it through without just bawling the whole time is I felt great comfort standing up here. And I realized one of the reasons why, in fact, the main reason why, is because of the reception I get from you each Sunday that I teach. So uh, I really want to clap for you for the support you give me, and I appreciate you very much. A good friend of mine and a member of this class has his annual golf tournament um, uh, coming up on March the 29th. That's a Monday. It's at the Cypress Wood Golf Club. And our law firm's going to be sponsoring some teams, but our law firm doesn't know how to play golf very well. <laughs> Frankly, I can score better throwing the ball. Um, so if anybody in here is a golfer, uh, male or female, um, who would want to play on Monday, March the 29th, if you will tell me or tell Lewis or tell Becky, uh, we will uh, sponsor you to play in this golf tournament. Uh, it's a, a good event, and we'd love to do it. Um, trying to think of anything else. Is Dr. Bob here today? No. Dr. Bob and I have a game we play. When we get around people, we, we spend way too much time together uh, because we have to travel a lot together. And we have a game where I tell everybody that Dr. Bob's not only a psychologist, but one of the most impressive people ever. He can read my mind. And people always, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I say, well, no, now watch. I'm thinking of a number between one and a thousand. Dr. Bob, what is it? And he'll say, whatever number comes to his mind, and I'll say, you're right. <laughs> See, now isn't that impressive? People still don't believe it, though, and they're not that impressed. So <clears throat> I then go a second step. I said, all right, I can tell. I see skepticism in your eyes. I, I can read your face. I'll do it again, twice in a row. Watch this. Dr. Bob, I'm thinking of a number between one and a thousand. And Dr. Bob will think for a minute, and he'll look at me, and he'll say, you tricky little dog, you're thinking of the number one million three. That's not between one and a thousand. And then I'll look, and I'll say, see, is he good or what? Okay. Now, no one generally believes that when we do it, which is good because he's not really reading my mind. It's whatever number he says, I just agree with what I was thinking of. What would it take for me to persuade you that this was a legitimate mind reading by Dr. Bob? Probably you getting to tell me what the number is I'm supposed to think about and me writing it down before he guesses. Okay, would that work? I mean, if Marcus were to come up here and whisper in my ear the number and I were to write it down and then Dr. Bob were to say it's, 372.943. And I show it. That'd be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? It'd be so impressive, I doubt that'll ever happen. Because Dr. Bob can't really read my mind, and he can't really guess what the number is. Think about that as we go through Daniel this morning.
because what Daniel has to say about the future is incredible. It's so incredible that a lot of people don't believe Daniel was written before the actual events prophesied because the prophecy is too much a mirror of what history unfolded. There's a problem with that, though. The, 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 The skeptics have a problem because we have found copies of Daniel among the Dead Sea Scrolls that predate 125, 150 B.C. by anyone's reckoning. And some of the prophecies that are in Daniel happened after 125 or 150 B.C., including the Romans conquering Jerusalem and the establishment of the church. So it's going to be an interesting class to look at. If you need a lesson, we've got them back there. Hold your hand up and they'll pass one around. Um, Let's get it up on the overhead and uh, let's commence. Here we are. Daniel, part two. Last week we covered Daniel. We looked at the first half, which is the historical narrative of Daniel. The first six chapters of Daniel have stories that involve history and a narrative of that history. Uh, The second half deals with prophetic visions that were exclusive to Daniel. By that I mean, in the second half of the book, Daniel had visions that are recorded. The reason I specify that these are visions of Daniel is because the historical part did have a vision or two that went to another person that Daniel interpreted. But Daniel's visions themselves are the prophetic visions that are contained in the second half of the book. Um, If we are to keep Daniel within a timeline reference, and I hate Terry Lynn's moving to New Mexico because she's the one who emailed me that said, keep doing the timelines, that looks good for us who learn visually. Um, uh, So this one's for you. Um, If we go back 1000 A.D. is King David. If we jump forward in 930, that's when after Solomon dies, remember Israel is divided into two, the northern half and the southern half. In 722, the northern half is conquered by Assyria and it's gone. Um, Assyria was the power structure until 612. And in 612, Babylon conquered Assyria. So we're 612 B.C., 612 years before Christ, and we've got Babylon has conquered Assyria. Let's zoom in and focus on that timeline for a minute. In 605, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar marches down and invades Judah and Jerusalem and carts off a group of captives. These are nobles. These are the the la-di-da's. These are the... uh, uh, bon vivants, these are the Lord High muckety mucks, whatever you want to call them. But the, 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 the studs of Israel, of Judah, are carted off in 605. Among those that get taken is Daniel. All right? In 597, there's a second deportation when Nebuchadnezzar comes back down and takes a second crew out. That included Ezekiel, we've studied also. 586 was the third deportation, and this is when Nebuchadnezzar goes ahead and says, I'm tired of having to come down here and jack with you people. I'm just wiping you out. And he destroys the temple and ultimately burns Jerusalem, and and things are annihilated. You with me time-wise? Jeremiah, we've covered the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied starting back 
with the Babylonian domination of Assyria and going all the way through the destruction of the temple. And we've covered that in this class already. If you've missed it, you can get the handouts and uh, uh, go back and look at it. Ezekiel picked up and prophesied. Now, Ezekiel was actually taken, remember, in that second deportation, Ezekiel's taken to Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And from Iraq, Ezekiel prophesies. And we covered that in this class already. If you missed it, get the handout. Daniel starts prophe- or starts uh, the story about Daniel actually starts when he is deported in 605. And his goes past... Uh, probably could have done better with my arrow. It goes past Ezekiel. It goes all the way up to about 539 King Cyrus. And we'll get through that. So... With that framework, now you've got everything it needs for class. Now we're plugged into class and we're all together, okay? I want to ask you a question. Do we live in Las Vegas? No. <laughs> That's good. It's a couple of you are wondering. <laughs> wanna, Howard said, want to bet? Um, do we live in Las Vegas? Is it really luck? Good luck. How's your luck today? He's a lucky guy. She's had a run of bad luck. Are things really out of control? My life's out of control. My job's out of control. My wife's out of control. (laughs) Not really, but you see she was wearing her coat up here while she was doing the announcements. Anyway... um, (laughs) Are things really out of control? That's the question that I have for you as we look at Daniel's prophecies in a way that tries to not only uh, affirm our beliefs, because it affirms our beliefs, at least to me, but in a way that also offers us something to take home uh, beyond just a confirmation of our faith. Um, The historical narrative, Daniel chapter 1 dealt with Daniel's training. Daniel was one of four in particular who did uh, extremely well and trained to work for King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream which no one could interpret. And the king gave a rule on this. He said, I don't want you to interpret the dream. I want you to tell me what the dream is. Daniel was able to do so by the grace of God. We're going to look at that dream in a little bit in a little more detail. Chapter 3 was the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, My kids, Shadrach, Meshach, and Tibed we go. I read it to Will for a bedtime story once. Um, uh, That was chapter 3. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream and goes crazy. Chapter 5 is the writing on the wall for Belshazzar, which he doesn't realize, which causes his demise. And number 6 is Daniel in the lion's den. And uh, um, that was the historical narrative. If we tried to put that into a timeline, if Daniel is taken in 605 to Babylon... Nebuchadnezzar reigns as a king, and uh, um, we know in around 604, Nebuchadnezzar has this bizarre dream that we're going to look at. So it was not long after Daniel had arrived in Babylon. In fact, Daniel was still in training for his ultimate job at the time he's able to uh, answer this. Um, uh, This is also somewhere in this time period we have the fiery furnace, and we have Nebuchadnezzar going crazy. In 562... Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king. His son Nabonidus becomes king. And Nabonidus reigns for a while. And Daniel's kind of silent during the reign of Nabonidus. But we find out that Belshazzar, 
becomes king, and, and, and history tells us Belshazzar was a co-regent, reigned with his father for some time. And that happens in about, uh, uh, I don't remember, 553, but we're not certain. Uh, it could be earlier, could be later. Um, so Belshazzar is king, and while Belshazzar is king, that's when that writing on the wall uh, occurrence happens at the big party where he has a thousand guests and they haul out the goods from the temple and start drinking out of the Lord's vessels and the hand just appears and starts writing on the wall and it basically says, uh, you've been measured, you've been put in the scales and you've been found wanting to the king. And Daniel's able to come in and read the writing on the wall to the king who then laughs about it, gives Daniel some tokens for reading it uh, uh, and proceeds to die that night because... Um, in 539, Cyrus takes over. Cyrus is uh, uh, the king of the Medes and the Persians. And so this is the demise of Babylon. I put Cyrus in yellow because Cyrus is a brand new world power. Babylon's uh, reign uh, ends here. And it is while Cyrus is king that Daniel is thrown in the lion's den which means Daniel had to be 70-plus years old when he went into the lion's den. That's where we ended last week. Now, what I'd like to do is put this timeline, instead of going down, I want to put it across because I want to project into the future a little bit with this, and let's cover some history of what we might have remembered from our history books uh, if we read them. Um, uh, before we do it, we'll look at Nebuchadnezzar, or while we do it, we'll look at Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Let's see if this works. Babylon is the reigning world power until 539. Babylon is conquered by Cyrus, who's king of the Medes and the Persians. And they reign until 331. Anyone care to guess who conquered the Medes and the Persians in 331 and became the dominant power for the Holy Lands? Alexander the Great. That's when the Greeks took over. And Alexander the Great, or his, uh, what happened to Alexander the Great when he died? He died like a real young guy, real unexpectedly. And he had four generals. And so his kingdom, the conquered world, as, as you will, was divided into four different kingdoms. And each of Alexander's generals got one. So you had one reigning out of Egypt, the Ptolemies. You had the Seleucids. You had four different kingdoms reigning uh, that divided out from Alexander's. But it was still a Greek reign with Greek language and Greek power structure and Greek religion and, uh, uh, until 63. And in 63, the Romans conquered uh, Judea and uh, uh, Jerusalem and put it under Roman rule, which is where, of course, it was at the time of Christ. And uh, um, uh, that's basic history. Now, something else did happen here in 33 A.D., the church was established, and that was under... So I, I should be careful here. If I was better, that'd be A.D., but y'all would know that the church was established after Christ, so it's not that bad, but, you know, I, that's, we jumped from... Six, that's 100 years, if you will, 63 B.C. to 33 A.D. Now, against this future framework, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he doesn't want to tell anybody what the dream is because he doesn't want the interpreters to be making it up. So he says, if you're good enough to really know what my dream means, you're good enough to tell me what my dream is. So in comes Daniel and says, I can do this, king, by the grace of God. 
Here's your dream. You're lying in bed and you're dreaming. And you dream about a man, a statue. And the head of the statue is made of gold. And the shoulders and arms of the statue is made of silver. And the waist and the, the legs and the midsection of the statue is made of bronze. And the feet and the, the legs of the statue are made of iron. And the toes, the feet have clay mixed in with the iron. And as you're dreaming, King, something unhuman, not by human hands, a, a rock is carved out of a mountain. And the rock is thrown and the rock destroys the statue and crushes even the legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay. And the king says, well, you nailed the dream. I'm all ears for the interpretation, please. Daniel says, okay, let me interpret for you. You are the head of gold. That's the kingdom of Babylon. After you, another kingdom will arise. That's the silver. Those are the Medes and the Persians. Next, a third kingdom will arise. That's the bronze. Those are the Greeks. Finally, a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, iron legs and feet, will crush the others. In the time of those kings, this is the Romans, the fourth kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and it will endure forever and it will smash all the other kingdoms and that's the church. Now, think about this for a minute. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty good. Now, the, the, the most liberal, skeptical, cynical scholar has got to agree that this was written sometime before 150 B.C. Because we've got copies of it that are dated before 150 B.C. And the odds of the, 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 this little renegade Jewish community out in the middle of the desert by the Dead Sea having eight scrolls of the book of Daniel, along with at least one other scripture that quotes from Daniel, and it's this community's got them in place by 150 B.C., means this thing must have been written sometime beforehand because you, you, you don't just walk in and say, oh, look at this, here's a brand new scripture. Shoot us eight Xeroxes of this scroll and let's just decide that we believe it's all written a long time ago even though some fellow just wrote it over there on his, his uh, desk, okay? So it, it gives us some frame of reference, and, and the, it is clear as you look at the dream that was being interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar, that there is a fourth kingdom strong as iron that's going to crush the others. The reason the iron's mixed with clay is because that kingdom would be different than the others also. And the Roman kingdom was different. All other kingdoms that have been referenced here were, were ruled by a king. The Roman kingdom was still pretty uh, autonomous, but as set up, the Caesar was elected by the Senate. And it was actually set up in a, in a much different way. It was not the king who, who uh, conquered and then uh, became all-powerful. 
the Caesars were actually appointed by the Senate. And over time, the Caesars took over as uh, uh, sole rulers, but it wasn't originally that way. And this, this Roman kingdom was strong as iron, and it did crush all the others, and it became the dominating world power, and it conquered all the way through even into Egypt, all the way through into Turkey and Iraq. But in the process of that, a fourth kingdom, I mean, a, a, uh, the God of heaven set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed, that will endure forever. And that's what we have in the kingdom of God. That's what the church is. Okay? So, this is Nebuchadnezzar's dream that happens way back in about 605 B.C. Now, if we fast forward a little bit here, once Belshazzar becomes king, Daniel himself has his first vision. And this would have been somewhere around 553. And Daniel's vision is a wonderful vision. In Daniel's vision, which is in chapter 7, Daniel has a very disturbing dream with four beasts. The first beast is a lion that's got wings that comes out and devours. The second beast is a bear that comes out. The third is a leopard that's very, very fast. And the leopard comes and annihilates and eats. And then the fourth is a horrible dragon with ten horns. And the dragon comes and devours and wars with the people of God. Daniel says that the angel came and gave Daniel an interpretation of this dream. Gabriel comes and Gabriel tells him, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Because these kingdoms do line up. The Babylonian kingdom, which is when Daniel had the vision, um, was the lion. The lion was a symbol for Babylon. If you go back and look at King Nebuchadnezzar's palace, if you go back and look at the gates that we still have, you'll see the symbol of a lion because that was his symbol and carved on the, great, on the gates. The bear were the Medes and the Persians, the second kingdom. Alexander the Great was the fast leopard who in a period of just a few years conquered the entire known world as he just swept through everyone with his uh, military genius and power. And then the fourth was Rome, a city built on, on hills. Uh, Rome is the dragon. Rome has the ten horn. And it is Rome that is ultimately there when the church comes, when, the, when uh, the, the saints of the Most High receive their kingdom and they are to possess it forever. Now again, this is a vision that's happening, the Bible says, at the time of Belshazzar, we're still at his first vision. Sorry, I don't have a good slide. This is happening... Well, it's backwards. At Belshazzar. But if you want to be a cynic and you want to say, there's no way somebody's going to know that there are these four kingdoms coming. There's no way this is going to be that clear and that then the saints are going to come and the church will be established. You're stuck. Because ultimately, even by the most liberal standards, this had to have been written during the time of the Greeks. Before Rome, that fourth creature, the dragon, and before the church. So um, it's prophetic and it's right on. If you're a cynic and you think Dr. Bob's making it up, 
you got to admit at least half of it was there before he made it up. May not have written the whole number down, but you got to admit he at least nailed the last three or four digits of it. Um, now, Daniel then has a second vision. And in his second vision, this is a, um, a good one. I don't know if you've had this dream or not. Um, he dreams that there is a, a goat and this goat's got two horns. And a, 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 a ram comes down with one horn in the middle. And the ram basically impales and kills the goat, the two-horned goat. And the ram's horn breaks off. And four horns grow up in its place. Daniel's terrified with this vision. The angel comes and explains it. Angel says, the two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. And that would, in fact, be the next kingdom to come. The shaggy goat's the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king, who was Alexander the Great. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge. Because when Alexander the Great died unexpectedly, his kingdom was divided into four. And uh, y'all, this is history. And I didn't say his kingdom's divided into four and it goes to his generals because of what Daniel says. I said this because I read history. And this is what history teaches us. It just happens to be a mirror with the prophecy that Daniel gave. Daniel has a third vision. His third vision actually happens after the Medes and Persians have conquered. And this is with Cyrus as king. And in this, there's a period of 77s. And this is a time period. And whether it's exactly 490 years or whether that's symbolic of something, scholars are open to debate. Though, in fact, it was about 490 years before Herod started rebuilding the temple again and, and Christ comes and things like that. So um, uh, whether it's any, uh, 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 symbolic or whether it's to be worked out in a mathematical formula, uh, scholars have legitimate debate over. Scholars I respect on both sides. Uh, but we do know that in this third vision, on a wing of the temple, this is the temple that's been destroyed, obviously now rebuilt, he, and this is uh, uh, the guy described in the vision, will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. We know during the 150s, in the, in the middle of the 2nd century B.C., uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who was actually the fourth Antiochus king that had this part of Alexander's empire, this is before the Romans have conquered, um, decided he was going to set up Greek worship in Judea, goes into the temple which had been rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah, recall, goes into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and sets it up as a pagan place of worship for Greek gods. And the sacrifices and, and everything that are being offered there are being offered to the Greek gods, the pagan gods. And this is the abomination that, that uh, caused desolation. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was uh, um, overthrown in a Jewish rebellion, the Maccabean Rebellion. We'll talk about some of this when we get to the Apocrypha because it's referenced there also. But... Uh, um, uh, uh, this happened. This happened. And it's pretty clear. 
Daniel has a fourth vision during the reign of Cyrus. And this, this is a messianic vision. And it's an interesting one. As the angel comes to interpret it, the angel's running a little bit late because he starts warring with a demon, um, uh, the prince of Babylon. And, and it's an interesting concept of, of angel stuff that we don't need to get into, but biblical literacy stored in the back of your brain. If you ever want to study it in more depth, it speaks about angels and, and spiritual warfare going on and how it does intersect with us and what's going on in our, in our global system. Now, if we look at the date of authorship of the book of Daniel, we are confronted with some very, very harsh things. If you go back historically, there was a, a philosopher named Porphyry who wrote in the, the 4th century, in the 300s. And he was a, a Latin Roman scholar. And among the books he wrote was one against Christianity. And, and um, Porphyry tried to confront the book of Daniel because Daniel is very compelling proof of Christianity. And so it was Porphyry who said that Daniel could not have been written until after all of these events took place. And the reason why is because the prophecies are so clear. And the explanation is so clear. I mean, Daniel itself says, this is the Medes and the Persians. This is the Greeks. The Greek kingdom divided into four. Then you've got another kingdom that wipes everything out and that takes over all. And from this comes the kingdom of God that's not carved out by man but comes from God. And it becomes a mountain that consumes the whole earth. And this kingdom lasts forever. Porphyry says that had to have been written after all of these events. Uh, Porphyry did not take the time to go down and start digging in the Dead Sea Scrolls or he'd have found out that he was wrong. Porphyry says this, and this kind of just subsides. Actually, Porphyry's writings got destroyed as heresy um, about 100 years later. So uh, we don't have copies of it. We have quotes and references of what Porphyry said in Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History, if you read that for going to sleep. Um, I mean, I love this stuff, and I find it quite boring. Um, to the middle of the 1800s, and scholarship, they called it, was taking place in Germany, biblical scholarship. And it was during this time that German scholars decided that uh, 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 Daniel, again, could not have been written when it was written because uh, it was too clearly prophetic. And, of course, this was a before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so various guys published, and, and I just would have loved for them to be alive when the Dead Sea Scrolls got uncovered after they've made these huge publications and big public lectures on how this never could have been written ahead of time because it's too exact in its prophetic proclamation. Today, you go to a lot of liberal schools and a lot of uh, liberal commentaries, and you can pull them off your shelf they will still say that a good bit of this had to have been written afterwards. Surely this was written at least at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes in the 150s, 160s, 170s. Because, and, and then they just lucked into the idea that Rome would conquer and they just lucked into the idea that the church would come out because it's just too precise. There are some problems uh, that, that uh, these folks have tried to, to assign with the book of Daniel. They've said, you know, we don't really have any non-biblical proof of the craziness that Nebuchadnezzar had. We don't really have any non-biblical, uh, you know, there's an issue because Daniel says this ha that, that Daniel's carted off in the third year of Jehoiachin's reign, but Jeremiah says it's the fourth year. 
So this must have been written by some idiot who didn't know what was going on. All of these issues are dealt with uh, uh, quite well in a book that I've talked about here before. It's by Harrison. It's uh, R.K. Harrison's Introduction to the Old Testament. Um, there it is up there if you want to get it. It's interesting stuff because, for example, and some of these are in the footnotes of the study Bible, I think, that you've got. Uh, if Daniel is, in fact, being written by a fellow who's in the king's service in Babylon, the Babylonian calendars were kept different than the Jewish calendars. In the Jewish calendars, you counted the first year that a king existed as the first year of his reign. So at the one-year anniversary, it's not, gee, it's been one year. Then it's been two years because you're looking at the start of the second. So when Jeremiah the Jew writes in Jerusalem, he says this happens in the fourth year of Jehoiachin's reign. But if Daniel's truly writing in Babylon and has been trained in the king's records, and has been trained to serve under the king and writes in a Babylonian frame of mind, you would call it the third year. So these elements that, that people use to try and disprove an early authorship of Daniel, actually, if you look at them in a fair, objective, scholastic light, show Daniel was written early. Either that or some guy in 150 B.C. had some incredible background in Babylonian record-keeping, which he wouldn't have had. There are other issues as well. Um, uh, it's a fascinating area to study. But let me answer some questions that we ask at the start of this class as we go through this. Question number one. We don't live in Las Vegas. Our life's not... What's happening in the world is not a gamble. It's not a bet. It is not a matter of luck. Good luck or bad luck. And things are not out of control. They're not out of control in your life. They're not out of control in mine. They're not out of control in your job. They're not out of control uh, uh, in your family. If we understand who's supposed to be in control. You follow what I'm saying? Things are out of my control, but I'm not the Lord of my life. And I really don't want to be in control anyway. When I signed on to the program, Jesus was not just my Savior. He was my Lord and Savior. When I signed on to the program and said, yes, please, be my Savior, but I said, please be my Lord and Savior. God is not just a God. God is my God. And what that means to me is I'm not supposed to be in control. God is. When I'm in control is when things do get messed up. When I try to force them into my mold is when they get distorted. When I try to control what people do, when I try to dictate the results that I want, when I try to inflict my desires on the situation, yeah, they're out of control because it is God's desires. 
One of the biggest problems. This is Satan's big tool with us, guys. This is it. God made man back in Genesis in whose image? We have spent all our lives trying to remake God in our image. We have spent our lives trying to tell God what God needs to be doing. We have spent our lives trying to tell people what God is from our perspective of what we want in our life. And what we all need to do is recognize that God is who God is. And God is in control. And this scripture tells us who God is. This is why we read it. This is why we want to be literate people with the Bible. We don't want to know who God is because of what Lanier says on a Sunday morning. We don't want to know who God is because of what Pastor Shook says on a Sunday morning. Does that help us? Yes. But we want to know who God is because of what God has revealed to us. And that is a God who is in control. And you take those areas of your life where you feel out of control and you give them to Him. And then five minutes later, when you feel that they're out of control again, you realize, oh yeah, I just took them back, didn't I? And you give them to Him again. And you can do it very easily. Oh, it doesn't work for me, Mark. Oh, yes, it does. Here's how you do it. Lord, I feel like this area of my life is out of control. I give it to you. Would you please take care of it? Would you please give me the humble heart to follow your lead? The wisdom to see where you're leading. And would you please take control? And then five minutes later, when it's not working, you do it again. And you do it again. And you do it again. And if you can't find where God's leading you, you pray about that. Points for home. God has a plan. He does. God has a plan that involves you by name. He's got a plan whether you ignore Him or not. He's got a plan whether you honor Him or not. And He knows every hair on your head. And He knows when a sparrow falls on this planet. God is not... Your brain is the size of your fist, roughly. Is that right, Mark? always say that. I mean, that's pretty close, isn't it? Okay. Percentage you use is smaller than that, but your brain is about the size of a fist. Percent that you use is... No. Um, unless you're from A&M, and then it's... Uh, that does not mean that the Longhorn juice twice as much. Um... This is the size of a brain. Why on earth do we think, well, God can't be that big. God can't do all of that. Why? I, and 
Look, He made the universes. He made the solar systems. He made the planets. He made the suns. He made billions of people. He keeps all of that stuff going. Are you surprised that... Our little brain cannot always understand all of the depths of God. Okay? I mean, I can't beat this in chess. And I'm going to understand. And, and I, just, I, I just almost laugh at humor at the people who have figured God out. Okay. We know God truly because He's revealed Himself. We know truths about God, but we never know God fully. Okay. It doesn't fit. What we know, we can know truly, but we can never know fully. God has a plan that the little human brain, it doesn't fully understand. But it's there. Whether you ignore God or not, it's there. And God's plan will succeed. It will not be thwarted. God can handle the world. God can see that the Romans truly take over, the church is truly established, that Alexander the Great truly conquers, that his kingdom is truly divided up into four. God can handle massive world events. So you figure God can handle what's going on in your life. Okay? He's got the power. He's got the ability. Final notes. God's kingdom, of which we are a part if we are in Jesus Christ, it's a kingdom of faith not genetics, not geographic location. It's not a kingdom made by hands. It's a kingdom built on blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. And we who are in God's kingdom are in a kingdom that never ends. Those of us who've lost family members, and those family members are in a kingdom, they're in a kingdom that does not end. They're in the same kingdom we're in. They're just in a little different space-time continuum than we are right now. This kingdom is not made by hands. Final point, take home. Scripture is amazing. Scripture is amazing. Now, please understand, I, I, when I was in uh, college, wrote a 70-page paper on Daniel, which I might add I've lost. I looked for it, getting ready for this class. I haven't seen it in 25 years, and it probably wasn't that good anyway. But one thing I can tell you is we've done a biblical literacy class of Daniel in two weeks. But Daniel is something that we could spend two months on, and we could go into a lot of detail with a lot of these prophecies, and each one would just like a fresh slap on the face, a wake-up call. Be amazed at Scripture. It's not something that, that we blindly follow with, with take off our glasses when we read it and we just you know, like jumping over a cliff and just trust something's there. This is not a blind leap of faith. There are good, strong, legitimate, rational, and logical reasons to say this is the holy inspired word of God. This is a truth that could not be made by human hands any more than the kingdom it proclaims was made by human hands. Thank you. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we thank you for this class. I thank you for the people in here and what it means to me to have their encouragement, love, and support. And I pray, Lord, that you will do a good job at helping me be faithful as a teacher to give the time and attention necessary to help enrich us all with the treasures that you have stored in the Bible waiting for us to open and, and wear and enjoy and marvel at and share. You're very good to us, Lord, and we fall down. You are not just our God, you are not just our Savior, but you are our Lord, and your wish is our command. Give us the wisdom to see it and the strength to do it. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.